Welcome to the Check Your Head Podcast, the podcast where notable musicians and experts come and share their stories and solutions for mental health and wellness. I'm your host, Mari Fong, a music journalist and life coach for musicians. And today I'm happy to announce some cool updates on our website at checkyourheadpodcast.com. With our country dealing with so many issues of racism, we're featuring the Asian Mental Health Collective and the Black Mental Health Alliance on our website, where you'll also find over 100 more organizations, apps, and nonprofits that offer free or affordable mental help. So instead of violence, let's show love and respect for all people, no matter who they are or where they come from. Another new addition to our site is our merch. Yes, now we have Check Your Head Podcast superhero tees and hoodies for sale. You know, when I first came up with the idea for being a Check Your Head superhero, it was for anyone who spoke out on mental health. But now, especially during the pandemic, I've seen so many superheroes come to light. Frontline workers, people who worked at hospitals, doctors, nurses, people working at nursing homes, people who have survived COVID, and so many more. So now a Check Your Head superhero includes our everyday superheroes, people in general who are fighting the good fight, surviving, and thriving. So if you want to remind somebody of their awesomeness, surprise them with a superhero, t-shirt, or hoodie, or even gift it to yourself to make you feel like the superhero you are every day. Now to our featured guests. Today I'm thrilled to have pop singer-songwriter Gabby Hanna on our podcast. Gabby unknowingly started her career by first posting on Vine. Remember Vine, this now-defunct social media app where people would post short videos? Well, she started posting on Vine during a really dark, lonely period in her life, just hoping to make friends. She was open and honest about her life and her struggles, which included eating disorders, cyberbullying, and growing up in a dysfunctional family. Gabby not only ended up making friends, but actually amassed millions of followers. Today, The Gabby Show on YouTube has close to 6 million subscribers, with Gabby having written two books, Dandelion and Adult Adolescence, that have both hit the New York Times bestsellers list, all by the time she turned 30 years old. As an artist, Gabby recently dropped an EP called Bad Karma, which hit number one on iTunes pop album chart, and we'll be playing a clip of her single, Call Me Crazy, at the end of our episode. Next, we'll talk with expert Kat Moore, who's the director of Belonging at USC, who actually got her position because she spent many years of her life being lonely, but found the secrets for making friends and creating connections, which she'll share with us. So let's start with pop singer-songwriter Gabby Hanna. You are an artist with a lot on your plate. You have new music coming out. You're an internet personality. You're an author, but you're also a mental health advocate. I really thank you for that. And you include a lot of your personal struggles and your insecurity in your art. But I was wondering, at what age did you first start noticing like some mental health issues? I would say that I put a name to it and was able to recognize that I was dealing with depression, even though I didn't quite understand what depression was, I was able to at least say, I'm struggling with depression in junior high. So probably around 13 ish years old, I think 15 is probably when it got a lot worse. But if I was to look back before that, I think that I was probably dealing with a lot of different anxieties and OCD and stuff before that. 
Okay. Oftentimes, issues like that are genetic, and they can run in families. Did you notice anything going on within your family or maybe relatives? Oh, yeah, totally. There's so many mental health issues in my family. So it's definitely something genetically in me for sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned before about having sort of a tumultuous upbringing. What was going on in your family life at the time growing up? There was just there was a lot of fighting. I I touch about a, a little bit on it in my book where I just recently this year finally been able to look at it from an outside perspective where I had a lot of anger for a long time about it because there was just a, a lot of fighting. But when I look at why there was so much fighting, it's because my parents, they had kids really young, their own mental health issues, alcohol issues, money issues. And it was just kind of a constant fight, it felt like, from as long as I can remember. Well, that must have been difficult because oftentimes when, when parents are fighting with each other, they may not be giving the nurturing love and attention that, you know, children need. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say definitely there was a lot of my siblings and I picking up the slack and kind of being the parents and taking care of their needs over ours and not really having anybody looking out for us. Mm-hmm. Except like my aunts and like my grandparents, like definitely did their best. But then there was also kind of a time period where we weren't really allowed to talk to them. So like they weren't a part of our life for a minute. Well, you know, I've listened to your YouTube videos and your podcast, and you seem so comfortable socially to speak out. But I was wondering, were you as comfortable socially when you were growing up? I think it depends who you ask. I think that on the outside, I was a very outgoing, extroverted person, but it was really sort of an act to cover up what I was feeling. Because if somebody asked me, for example, what's wrong? I showed up to school and I had a certain look on my face. It was the scariest thing to me for somebody to ask me what's wrong because I would never tell anybody what's wrong. Everything felt like it was a secret. So I overcompensated a lot, but I wasn't being true to my authentic self. I'm a naturally like pretty like soft-spoken and introverted person. So I'm definitely more comfortable now because I'm expressing really who I am and talking to people who feed my soul in that way, but it's all an illusion. I think that's the hard part is maybe taking down those walls because you've had them up for so long Mm -hmm. and you were kind of protecting yourself from other people seeing something that maybe you're ashamed of. But I think once you start to reveal that, that's when you really are able to bring in people because they can understand that feeling if they've experienced it themselves, which is sort of the healing part. Totally. It's, it's That's why mental health education is so important because when I was a kid, I didn't recognize the things that I was feeling as something that wasn't something to be ashamed of. Everything felt embarrassing or like opening up about things that were going on at home felt really shameful because I was carrying the weight of like my parents' decisions and actions. So I was just like, I wanted to present that I was just a normal person from a normal family, but mm-hmm. it's just not the case. And that should eat you alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 
I read one of your poems that really stuck out to me. It was about you as a child talking about monsters under the bed. Mm-hmm. And it ended with saying something about monsters that were inside my head. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, what are some of the thoughts in your head that frighten you or make you feel like there's a monster inside? There was a really, I couldn't even tell you how long time period in my life where I feel like I've just recently really come out of it. You know, when you spend a life being gaslighted and lied to and being made to feel like you're a problem and not really learning how to have healthy relationships, it's hard to figure out if you have a falling out with someone like, was that my fault? Did I do something wrong? And it got to a point where I couldn't figure out if I was just like a bad person. I felt like a monster. And I had these thoughts telling me all the time that I should be embarrassed, I should be ashamed. And then you grow up. And finally, what I've come to realize is I was raised by narcissists. I sought the approval and love of narcissists. So then I continued to fall into these patterns of seeking approval, love, and affection from narcissists. So of course, my relationships are going to blow up. And I myself was also displaying a lot of narcissistic behaviors because that's all I knew. That's what I was raised in. That was the company that I was seeking and trying to differentiate like, am I a bad person? Is this like a bad behavior? It's hard when you don't have something to look to as healthy. So then finally, I started finding these you know, healthy relationships that made me realize that, oh, I'm not an evil person. I'm not a monster. I'm not, I shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed. I just had, I went through some shit and now I find people who love me and respect me and see the best in me and help me talk through things that are the worst in me. And it's just, it's so human. (laughs) So I guess the monsters that were living in my head were the negative thoughts of the lifelong of being gaslighted. Well, what I thought was really interesting is that you majored in psychology when you were at the University of Pittsburgh. So what was it that kind of inspired you to choose that? And what were you thinking about doing with it? I think I went into psychology for the reason that probably 90% of psych students go into psychology, which is feeling like either you want to figure yourself out or you want to fix other people. Because I, I grew up around so much mental illness that it felt like my way of learning and understanding and hopefully helping others. But then once I was actually in school for psychology, I was like, okay, it's cool to uh, know this shit, but I don't want to be a doctor. (laughs) Yeah. I was planning on doing that. And then I was just like, fuck this. I can't do this. I know it's a long road to be a psychiatrist. And it's so funny because I was thinking about that for myself. And my dad was like, you do not want to do that. And thankfully now I'm I'm a music journalist so that I can interview people and still kind of get these great stories. But you talk about these mood disorders and it sounds like you've gone through some therapy, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot that I've read about you, but what have you been diagnosed with? So mostly an array of anxiety disorders. Um, ADHD, OCD, generalized anxiety, depression, and most of them I'm working through. I've actually never gotten into medication. I'm finally, as I'm getting older and my ADHD is getting 
a lot worse as I get older. Now I'm getting to the point where I feel like I need to medicate that because I was very sure that I was bipolar, but I couldn't get a therapist to tell me that I was bipolar. And they were just like, I'm sorry, you're not like whatever. And then it turns out that ADHD kind of manifests itself a lot in very bipolar ways, like mood swings or like that type of shit. So it's mostly that PTSD, CPTSD is probably like the main overarching thing. And then under that umbrella is just different anxieties. Okay. So CPTSD is considered complex PTSD. Yeah. And I'm just curious because we all know more about PTSD versus CPTSD. Mm-hmm. How would you explain the difference? But actually, I don't even think that CPTSD is in the DSM-5. So I guess it's more just like PTSD would be the actual diagnosis of it. CPTSD is for people who have lived in prolonged situations. So PTSD would be if you got into a car accident, you went to war, very situational things. CPTSD would be living in a household with abuse, being in a long-term relationship with abuse, more often than not on top of another, because usually when you grow up in abuse, you land yourself in abusive relationships. It's more about, it's not a one-time situation that causes the post-traumatic stress. It's a prolonged lifestyle. Okay. One thing I was really interested in is that at one time you had an eating disorder and also body dysmorphia. And I think it's really important to kind of explain that because there are quite a few people and young adults that are suffering with that in silence. Mm -hmm. How did that start? And can you explain a little bit about that experience? Sure. So I actually wrote about this for the first time in my book too. And it's something I never really talked about before, but my eating disorder started. I remember the moment that I realized that I needed to care. I was a kid. We had a campfire. I was eating a hot dog and I couldn't finish it. And I said, does anybody want the rest of this? And my mom said something along the lines of, Jesus, why do you have to eat yourself to the point of being stuffed? Why can't you just eat a normal amount of food? And that was the first time I was like aware of my body and what I was putting in it. And from then on, it was just like food was always a thought for me. And then as I got older, you know, growing up without money too, like we're eating junk food, we're eating processed food. I have no idea about nutrition. Like that information wasn't really shown to us. Obviously we could have researched it, but how, like there's so much stuff out there. So it wasn't until I was maybe 25 years old that I finally came to terms with it. It had gotten to a point where I was I suppose it's a form of bulimia where I would just eat and spit everything out. Like I would allow myself my safe foods, my healthy foods. And then there were the foods that were deemed my guilty foods that I wasn't allowed to have, like cookies, chips, cake. And I would eat them, chew them, spit them out. It caused fucked up metabolism, fucked up my teeth. There were times I would be at an event and I would put something in my mouth and immediately regret it. And then have to find somewhere to spit it out because like I could not force myself to swallow it when logically that one bite of chocolate cake, I'm so desperately trying to find a place to spit it out. That's not going to make me fat. But in my head, that would have, I would have woken up fat if I allowed myself to swallow it. So it was like a really long, lifelong and difficult journey. 
Is that something that you're still struggling with? Not really, honestly. I'm, I always joke and say that my boyfriend cured my eating disorder, which obviously he didn't. Nobody can do it except you. But once I met him and he just changed my life in so many ways, he's just such a good person. And he introduced me to so many good people. But it was the first time that like we were going on dates and I was like, yeah, I can have fries and burgers with this guy. Or yeah, I can totally have dessert with this guy. Like I deserve this. I train two hours a day for four years. I can have, you know, cookies now. And then I just got to a place with my body where I realized I don't have to be whatever image that I was, I don't even know what I was trying to attain. I don't know who I was trying to impress. I guess people on the internet, people in high school who made fun of me, like, I really don't know. Now I love my body so much. I think I probably also had some type of eating disorder in terms of working out way too much, like being obsessed with what I was putting in my body and counting calories. But now I go to the gym when I can make it and I I eat as best as I can and fuck up on the weekends a lot. <laughs> <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever lose like a lot of weight to wear? No. Okay. Like I look the best right now than I've ever looked. And my body was just holding on to everything because the way I was binging and then just trying to go on these crash diets for two weeks, my body never had a chance to be skinny. And as I'm chewing this stuff and spitting it out, my body's still intaking sugar. My glucose is spiking. I don't know the science of nutrition, to be honest, but I know that by doing that, I wasn't helping myself at all. And then when I just started eating pizza when I wanted to and trying to be a healthy person, that's when weight just fell off my body. Well, you mentioned your boyfriend, and I remember seeing a video of you two eating a peanut butter and pickle sandwich yeah. and really enjoying that. <laughs> yeah. but, but loving relationships really make a difference to our right. daily mental health. How has he made you feel now that you're in a good, healthy, loving relationship? Day and night, dude. Like It's so crazy how much having good people in your life who just accept you and support you, how much it can change you. You made me feel like when I like, along with that joke of he cured my eating disorder, I, I just never didn't feel sexy around him. There was never a moment where I was like, embarrassed to be naked. There was never a moment where I was worried about what my stomach looked like. I was just comfortable. And then I, I put on a little weight in quarantine. Never for a second was I concerned that he might not look at me the same way. He's always made me feel sexy. And then I was like, Aww. why the fuck am I micromanaging my food like this? I can eat whatever the fuck I want. I have him. Oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. He's so opposite to me where I'm like, I'm very high strung. I catastrophize everything. I talk a lot. I express a lot. And he's really level-headed. He's really calm. And he's really good at diffusing situations. Like He was able to show me my toxic behaviors without telling me that I was toxic. Because I was dating toxic people. I was friends with toxic people. So if I was displaying a toxic behavior, I was met with toxicity. And with him, if I act in a way that's like a little irrationally or a little unfair, he doesn't react. So then I'm just sit there to sit in my own toxicity. And I'm like, hmm, now I feel dumb because you're being really rational and kind. And then eventually, actually very quickly, those behaviors just fall away because it teaches you, oh, this is what healthy communication looks like. 
you know what I mean? So just finding somebody who is so patient and loving and understanding of me and like, he's always seen me when I'm stressed or emotional. He's just like, no, like you are a beautiful, talented, loving, caring, kind, compassionate person. And you got angry. You know what I mean? So just day and night. <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. Um, you, especially during pandemic and lockdown to oh, have yeah. <laughs> that day to day, 24 seven sometimes, because we've been dealing with a lot of stresses during this time. Absolutely. I don't know how I would have survived this past year without him. He he moved in officially this past summer, but he'd been staying with me pretty consistently since last October. So having him in my life as a true partner, that's been life-changing for me. That's really nice to hear. I'm so glad for you. You've kind of made your name on social media platforms, and social media has been a hotbed for cyberbullying and teasing and negativity. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've experienced some hurtful comments, but I was wondering if you can give me some examples of that. Sure. Yeah, social media was really hard for me for a minute, and now I think I've finally figured out my balance with it. I started using it when I was like 13 years old, like when MySpace was first big and AIM and stuff. So to me, the internet was always my safe place. And that's how I kind of got into it. And there's always bullying. Like even when I was first posting on Vine back in 2013, there's comments about my nose and I was chubbier at the time. So comments about my weight, comments about my appearance, comments about my voice or whatever. And those things hurt, but you can kind of brush them off and You can get defensive about it, but at the end of the day, those aren't the things that stick in your brain. When people start attacking your character as a person or telling you that you're lying about your mental illness, or for example, I've always been really open about, you know, depression and CPTSD and like childhood abuse and trauma. And at some point when it was cool to try to attack my character, it was, she's pretending to be mentally ill so that uh, she can play the victim. She wants you to feel sorry for her. So no, dude, like I'm, I'm talking about this because I wish that somebody was when I was younger and it's okay to express yourself and explain things without saying that you're not at fault. Those things can coexist. You can be at fault and say you're sorry and recognize that you weren't the best person in a moment. And you can also say, this is why it happened. And this is what I've learned. But people don't generally like that, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so I think that's where I started kind of getting wrapped up in it. It's just a lot of people just using my name for clicks, people making up fake stories about me. And it got really ugly for a minute where the stories were getting uglier and darker and more and more people were just piling on and, you know, painting someone as like a narcissistic, sociopathic master manipulator. Those words hurt. That's not the same as saying your nose is big. That's Mm -hmm. attacking to your core. And for me, it was also, we're talking about like the monsters living in the head I know what I come from. I know how I was bred. I know what's in my genetics. And there's always a constant fear, not so much anymore. But for a long time, there was a fear that I was crazy and I didn't know. Or when I look at my mom and 
she's so detached from her actions and truly cannot see reality. Of course, I question that in myself. So when people are calling me like a narcissist, I don't get it. I don't think I'm being a narcissist at all. I don't think I'm being narcissistic. I care so much about everybody. And like, but do I, am I a master manipulator? And I don't know it. Is this a lie that I've created? Am I telling myself a story because I have these mental blockers up so that I can live day to day being a shitty person and not feeling bad about it. And that was my life for years, just constantly trying to figure out, am I a bad person or am I just being very aggressively attacked all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. And it turned out I was being really aggressively attacked (laughs) for a long time. (laughs) Well, it's hard to control what people do, what people say and think. Uh, I guess all you could do is really, you know, change your reaction, change your attitude about it. Because unfortunately, there's always going to be cyberbullying, right? Totally. Whether we like it or not. And there was a time when you kind of disappeared from social media. Mm -hmm. What was like the final straw that made you say, you know what, I'm going to take a break and just be quiet for a bit? There came a point where there were so many lies and it felt like, I couldn't keep up with them. And every time, like I was trying to dispel them or disprove them, but that every time I tried, then it was, oh, well, she's a liar because of this, or here's this hole in this story, or it was a constant cycle. And the more I was responding, the more that people were feeding on it. And even if I was to say, but this is the truth and I can prove it, people would say, be careful. She's a master manipulator. She's incredibly skilled at manipulating the truth to make you believe her. Don't believe everything she says. So now I'm just like backed in this corner. You've painted me as somebody that could never defend themselves. The actual final straw was I recorded an episode of a podcast where I just exposed all of it, where I was showing six-year-old emails, six-year-old text messages, showing an actual timeline of how my abuser had been treating me and the blackmail that they were holding over me. To me, it was the only answer because I like to keep that shit private. There's no reason for me to be bringing up someone who I was barely friends with, who's been blackmailing me for six years. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to put an end to it. And as I watched back the edit of it, I was just like, I'm no better than them. (laughs) Like I'm going to drive myself fucking crazy. This had become an obsession because it was, it was just like a a frenzy. So I was like, okay, I can continue to do this or I can make the choice to remove myself from the situation, accept what's happening, accept that I know the truth and my friends know the truth and that the people who love me will be here for me and understand me. And no matter what happens at the end of the day, if I lose everything and I go live in the woods with my boyfriend in Colorado, I have a pretty sick fucking life. So I was just like, I have to back up. I'm not winning in this situation. I'm not happy in this situation. I have to change something. This is my change. And it worked. I feel a lot better. (laughs) Well, that's good. I mean, that's an example of creating a boundary, right? Saying, you know what? I don't want to play this anymore. I'm stepping away from this. And the more you participate, the bigger it gets. Totally. Um, And so then you decided to come back. Mm -hmm. And when you came back, what was the attitude that you had after taking that break? 
I wasn't nearly ready to come back when I did. I probably could have used another couple months at least. I was kind of forced to come back because I had obligations. I had to be a big girl and come back to work and just fucking do it. But when I came back, I just came back with a, a new attitude of how much I was allowing it to affect me, how much of my time and personal energy I was allowing myself to put into it, trying to keep the show afloat for the sake of my podcast team. I finally found myself with my new channel in creating content that I actually want to create. So that's been a really fun journey for me to start over. Like I made a brand new channel. It went from 7 million subscribers a couple years ago to 70,000 now. Just genuinely having fucking fun again. And like why I started in the first place. I didn't start YouTube thinking I was going to be something huge. I started it because I fucking loved YouTube. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're getting back to your roots and you're feeling impassioned about the work that you're putting out there, the art that you're putting out there. You know, one of the things we talk about on the podcast is also um, solutions, like mm -hmm. things that have worked for you. And you seem like you've really looked back and have some self-awareness of what was going on, like kind of like stepping away from yourself and being able to look a little bit more from the outside. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned therapy. What has that brought to your life? Uh, to be completely honest, and this is not advice that I'd like to give people because I think that I'm a very particular case. I actually found that I was holding myself back a lot in therapy because my social anxiety was so bad and my fear of being somebody that I didn't want to be was so bad that I was holding myself back a lot. Like my mom has borderline personality disorder. One of my biggest fears is being like her. So I would hold back information that would make me feel like, oh, well, if I say that, maybe that will confirm this thing that I am so afraid of. Mm -hmm. Or um, just feeling ashamed of something that either happened to me or that I did and not wanting to talk about it. It was just really hard for me to break that boundary. So when I started talking to a camera by myself, just freely speaking, which is what my new channel is, I was able to do it without fear and without hesitation because I knew that I had the edit. So I could explore every thought that came into my mind. I would stop and say, well, why do I feel that way? How did that affect me? Where did that come from? Is this a rational thought? Which are the things you're supposed to be doing in therapy <laughs> that I was not doing. But it's just about exploring your own brain and being able to feel shame because I think that's one of the hardest feelings to feel ashamed. And when you're trying to be a better person, the first step is recognizing all the ways in which you are not your best self. And that can bring up some really ugly stuff. Well, I think being honest with yourself is really hard. But, you know, I think about the people that have really kind of told me the truth about how they feel about themselves. And you always find that those are the moments that you really appreciate. Because mm -hmm. even with social media, we are trying to portray a certain lifestyle or a certain image. And when somebody posts something like, sometimes I wonder if I want to get up in the morning, and you get this sense that wow, that person's in a dark place or they really need some help or yeah. you could sense that it was very honest. You find that a lot of those posts can get an authentic reaction. Mm -hmm. But I could see where being honest, is it's hard. 
it's hard to kind of strip away all of that. Especially publicly. Exactly. So at one point you mentioned you had 7 million subscribers. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you had a good friend come and ask you for advice. They want to be like a a social media celebrity. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give them? Don't. (laughs) (laughs) Step away Um, now. Yeah, I think it's so tough just because I have such like a volatile relationship with it that if I could give myself advice, I'd say fucking run like from the jump. But that's not fair because there's obviously a lot of people who don't have my experience with it. And it's just, you have to not let the numbers validate you because I think that what happened with me was I'm I'm a very accomplishment oriented person. I'm a very praise oriented person. I would rather take the world knowing something amazing I did over $10 million. Like I've always gone for praise over money. It all goes back to your childhood, not receiving enough love and attention or praise or whatever it is. And it's a confidence thing. So when I was getting really good numbers on social media, that to me was like the ultimate praise. Like I went from no one cares about me to so many people are watching and listening. And the weight that I put on those numbers was really dangerous. And it makes for a really successful person. It makes for making a lot of money on the internet. It makes for a lot of good business opportunities, but I was not grounded. You just have to make sure you're in a really good place and know what you're looking for and what it's worth to you, the sacrifice that you're willing to make to get it. Well, one thing you mentioned is you have had your subscribers change to 70,000. But how did that affect your mental health? Because if you were sort of thriving on this attention, and then all of a sudden, it seems to go down, what were some of the thoughts that were going through your head at that time? Oh, I catastrophize everything. So my self worth was very much tethered to these because that was my identity. Like before that, I didn't know who I was. It was just some girl that nobody cared about. I was a fucking speck in the universe. So watching that change was very anxiety inducing. But then I also jumped 90 years ahead where, okay, well, if the subscribers aren't there, then I can't do music because this is how I pay for music. This is how I promote music. If I don't have fans on YouTube, then I won't have fans on Spotify. And it was all interconnected where my head took it to a place where I'm going to lose everything I've ever fought for and everything I've ever loved. And I'm going to go back to where I came from. And I'm going to go back to being super poor and unhappy and in a bad part of town. And it's just, it's so illogical, but that's what my brain was telling me. Like you tell yourself lies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the, the thing with anxiety and depression. And I'm sure with ADHD is that sometimes the thoughts that come into our head even scare us, right? Because you might logically think, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense, but I believe it so much. Yeah. How have you learned to deal with it? Have you learned any coping skills through therapy? What is working for you with the anxiety? I'm in a pretty pretty good place lately just through practicing like real humility and real gratitude and being just so thankful and happy for what I've accomplished so far and 
how I live and the people in my life. So that's just been great in general, just to quell the fear of, oh, what if I'm never going to be somebody? Like I already am somebody. Like I'm enough. That's cool. Like I already did. I did some dope shit in my life. If I retire tomorrow, I have nothing else. Like I still won. You know what I mean? (laughs) So that's helped a lot. The past week or so, I've been dealing with a really strong wave of anxiety and it's been tough. I have the fucking worst coping skills. I'm just so bad at dealing with stress. And if something is bothering me, it kind of bleeds into other portions of my life. But I just try to be as honest as possible with everybody around me. Like I was in the studio yesterday and you could feel how tense I was. So I just try to be really open and communicative with them. Like, hey, just don't take anything personally today. If you feel like I'm in a bad mood, I am, but it's not because of you and I'm here and I'm excited to work. Let's create something dope. But if I communicate something in a way that hurts your feelings, like it's not intentional, I'm just, I'm not my best self today. And then that just kind of sets the tone of, okay, totally. Let's fucking do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, that's great communication. I mean, it sounds like some of the talk that we do with our own personal relationships, right? Sometimes we're in a bad mood or we're hangry or something it's always good to explain where you're at because oftentimes things that happen with ourselves or with other people, oftentimes it's something else. Oh yeah, totally. And I've also experienced it on the other end where like, I can tell somebody's off or, Oh my God, is like my boyfriend not like me anymore. And then it's, Oh no, he's dealing with his own shit too. Like sometimes he has a bad week at work and sometimes he's feeling lost in life and that makes him a little more distant. It's not that he's a distant person. It's not that he doesn't care about me. It's just understanding that not everything's about you (laughs) in both directions. (laughs) Right. So now, what are some of the daily things that you do to keep your mental health in check, like your mental health toolbox? Mm -hmm. For me, it's creating every day. As long as I'm feeling productive and moving forward... Hygiene is important. Waking up and going to bed and make sure I'm washing my face, brushing my hair, putting in my earrings and just doing a little bit just to make myself feel like a human and feeling good about yourself. Relaxing is really important. And I I saw a fucking meme on Instagram of all things that said, relaxing is not a waste of time. And coming from somebody who's a chronic workaholic, that's something that I've been really coming to terms with. I need to take a day off. I need to stop working at a certain point through the night. If I'm awake, that doesn't mean I have to be busy. I can take a lunch break where I'm not also answering emails. So just being kind to myself. I also learned that an ADHD trait is over planning and not giving yourself enough time to do the thing and oh, that'll take 20 minutes. And it really is something that takes four hours. And you're like, why the fuck is my life falling apart? I'm a worthless human being. But then once you learn that behavior, Mm -hmm. you can just, you can plan better. All around, I think the general tip is just be kinder to yourself. Be forgiving to yourself. Give yourself a little bit of grace. You're not perfect. You're not a superhero. It'll work out. Okay. You know, one thing I thought that was really interesting with you is that you started on the internet, but then you kind of changed into being like a singer-songwriter. Was that ever part of your career plan? None of this was my career plan. This all happened on accident. 
it all started with just fucking around on Vine. And then I started YouTube. And then I really wanted to write a poetry book. And I wrote a song to promote the poetry book. And then that song did really well. And it gave me the confidence to continue on with my music career, which was always the dream. Like when I was a kid, I was pretending like I was a rock star. I used to draw myself in the front of a girl band playing guitar, but it just wasn't a realistic thing. To me, it was the same as fantasizing about being the president, which is also attainable. You know what I mean? That's why I also say that I've already done enough. Like I didn't expect myself to do any of this shit and it's cool that I did, but yeah, always a dream, but wasn't really a part of the plan. Mm. Yeah. You dropped two songs from an upcoming album that's coming out and it's called this time next year we'll see i'm well not sure i might change it <laughs> okay. now i'm just in a place where like i'm so different and the music that i'm making is so different the fact that you're changing it sounds like you're really coming into some good chapters in your life and that's yeah. wonderful because this whole thing is a journey and sometimes we really don't know where it's going but we do the best to keep going, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm super excited for the future. This is the most excited that I've ever been, like the most optimistic. I can feel the energy shifting. I know that this year is going to be fucking incredible for me and the people around me. So I'm just excited. Oh, that's so cool. I'm excited for you too. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about mental health or about Gabby Hanna and what you're doing? Totally. This is the first time in my life, like they always say like, oh, it gets better. The depression will get better. There's going to be better times. And I finally got there. It took 15 fucking years, but we're here. And I just want to like give that message. It may take longer than you think, but if you give up on yourself, you're not giving yourself the chance, especially if you're somebody who's suicidal. For sure, nothing is going to be worse than death. Absolutely. And if you want to literally kill yourself, you don't want to kill yourself. You want to kill the thing that's inside of you. So focus on killing that instead, because that's possible. And then you can actually enjoy that part of you being dead. Right. It got really like bleak really fast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what you're saying really is true. When people had depression or anxiety, ADHD, you talked about body dysmorphia. Those are all things that can be that need to be dealt with. Totally. And once you get balanced, once you get better, your true personality can come out. And totally. everyone's personality and creativity can blossom because things like depression and anxiety are they're blocks. They're trying to pull us in one way. So we really need to fight for a good life and good mental health. I really appreciate what you're doing. I love that you have this podcast and the message that you're trying to spread. And I think what you're doing is incredible. I think you're an amazing woman and very kind. And oh. I really enjoy talking to you. So thank you for allowing me to come. Next up, we have USC's first director of belonging. She's also a coach and a speaker with our expert today being Kat Moore. She's the president of a company called Rehuman that aims to empower others to digitally connect on purpose, on and off screen. Kat will be sharing her story and her solutions for loneliness, along with secrets for making lasting connections. 
You know, I really love this whole topic of loneliness because not only are we in a pandemic where they're finding like 75% of people have had moments of loneliness, but I also grew up as a shy, introverted child and really had a hard time uh, breaking out of my shell. And it's difficult, you know, when you grow up uh, and you're just afraid of socializing and not knowing what to do. In fact, Gabby Hanna actually started making videos on Vine because she was lonely and she wanted to make friends, kind of admitting that she always had a hard time connecting with others. And I've read that you spent the first 24 years of your life feeling uh, lonely. So why do you think some people have a hard time connecting with others? Well, isn't that the million dollar question? (laughs) People have been, you know, especially over the last 25 years in the U.S., all trying to help answer that question. And the simple answer is it's extraordinarily complex. So I like to tell people that when we hear these big, scary statistics on how many people experience loneliness, again, not just during COVID, but prior to COVID, it was over half of the population. And for the first time ever, Gen Z uh, or the younger generation was more lonely than any other. Generally, it's um, 65 plus. So this was even before COVID, a crisis that was starting to gain national um, attention by lots of different industries. So I like to tell people that there's no such thing as loneliness with a capital L That's that everyone is experiencing. What we have is millions of lonelinesses with a lowercase l, meaning every single person experiencing loneliness is experiencing it for a host of very personal um, and complex reasons. So it can be anything, right? It can be that in your environmental conditions, you don't have access to a lot of different people. Maybe you live in a rural area where there's just not a lot of humans to choose from. You could have internalized a lot of negative self-esteem messages from people around you that can make it difficult for you to think that you have anything to offer in a friendship or a relationship, and so you shut down. There's a ton of different reasons. It could be that you were never taught and modeled basic social skills. So there's a lot of different reasons people are experiencing loneliness, and then if you think about single parents, they're the loneliest subgroup of all lonely people. And if you think about just their lifestyle, right, they're not around a lot of people because of their childcare responsibilities. So there's lots of different reasons why people are experiencing this. So I try to focus my work on, okay, but we still know that we're all wired to connect and that meaningful connection is the number one predictor of our well-being across the lifespan. So how do we think about the really particular tiny details of each of our lives to see where we can start making meaningful connections where we are. A lot of musicians, they go on tour. And it's like traveling for your career. And I know the loneliness that could happen, even though they play to thousands of fans, you know, big arenas where fans are giving them this positive energy there's still a feeling of loneliness because they're disconnected from a lot of things that they love, their home, their family, their friends, their, their dog. What are some of the things that people can do, especially if they're on the road or, or traveling for work? Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. And what's really interesting is I've seen this done really well. 
and I've seen it done really poorly. So without naming the bands involved, I met someone when I was 18 years old. I was with the press and I went backstage to do an article on ticket scalping. And I thought I was so cool because I was getting to meet the band. Turns out it was a very famous pop rock band. And I spent about two hours interviewing their bass player. It was supposed to be a 10 minute interview. What happened is that he started telling me because for the first time in who knows how many years, he had someone who actually was listening to him. And so his whole life story came out and his whole disillusionment with fame, being on the road and all of these people essentially worshiping him, right? And turning him into a non-human being. And for him felt like it took his humanity away. He was disconnected from his family and his friends who knew him deeply. And he was not thriving. It was within six months of meeting him and learning about his experience of being on the road and with fame in general, that he had a massive mental breakdown and left the band. And so that was one situation where he could not figure out how to navigate those pressures and the lack of social, healthy social structure. Versus I met another guitar player in a very famous rock band in my Starbucks. And travels all over the world, multiple cycles of it per year. Yet every single one of the people in his band are dads. And so they have these robust family structures. And as a band, they are laughing and being very real with each other. So there's a very healthy system within the band and with the people who travel with them, the people who set up and and their managers and all of that. And they're in constant contact with their families while they're on tour as well, and even are having their families come and visit them. So I think the key is to be paying attention to what your own experience is. If you are starting to tell that you're stressed, anxious, withdrawing, coping with things that aren't healthy, you're trying to escape, that's a clue that you probably need to be finding ways to reach out and connect with either the people you're with on tour or to have people in place before you even go on tour where you're setting up regular check-in times with them. Maybe that's after the rehearsal or maybe it's after the show where you're having people set up that you can FaceTime, text with, check in with so that you can stay rooted in reality and know that there's life beyond the moments that you're traveling. That's really good advice because it's one thing to know that that's important, but it's another thing to schedule it into your day, connecting with your band or people that you are working with on tour or connecting with people back home or connecting with a therapist or counselor or someone like that, that you can have a confidential conversation and connect that way. 100%. I'm really interested in your story because you admitted that you were lonely for a good part of your life. And then there was a situation where you decided to do something about it. What was that situation and what you did to start your journey on learning how to connect with others? Sure. Like you say, I was lonely the first 24 years of my life. And I was so unaware of my own experience, though, in my ability to talk about it, because loneliness is something that that typically people don't talk about. It feels shameful or something that you think there must be something wrong with me. So people generally don't talk about it. And so 
I thought life just sucked. I never had the thought, I'm lonely, I should do something about it. I was just um, constantly miserable. So it wasn't until I was about 24 years old, I had been going to coffee shops all over the country since I was 18. I kept moving from city to city, just hoping that I would find somewhere where I could fit in and belong and make friends and feel normal. But everywhere I moved, I was still there. And so it didn't matter which environment I was in or which people I was around. I still didn't know how to make anything any different. And so when I was 24 is when I ended up getting married. And then it wasn't really until I was pregnant with my son. And I started going to the same Starbucks in Northeast Los Angeles. And I would just sit in the same seat day after day after day. And people started breaking the ice with me. I wanted to be part of the human family. And I was just like, but how do I get out of my snow globe? Like, what do I do? And so the best I could do was to put my body in public, even though I didn't know what to do after that, because I couldn't just sit at home. But I knew I need people. I want to be connected. So at least I can go sit in a neutral public space in the flow of public life. And I don't know, kind of hope something happens. And so what happened is as my belly started to grow, people started breaking the ice with me. So babies, boots, dogs, these are universal conversation bridges for breaking the ice with people. And so it was really by being in the same place repeatedly, being present, I started to become more comfortable with looking at people, saying hi to people having small talk, letting people sit down at my table. So it was a very slow process for me to come out of my shell. I had to build trust in that setting over time with people from all walks of life. But it was a very quick transition after that, actually, to realizing, oh, not only can I connect with these people, but I actually, I'm the kind of thing as a human being who can create connection for other people. And so I started to realize that people, whether it was someone who was living on a tent on the LA River, talk about isolated from mainstream society, or a CFO, or a rock star, or they were all coming and sitting down at my table for three minutes while their lattes brewed and spilling the beans about their life. And the number one thing everyone said when they would get up from my table is, thank you so much for listening to me. Sometimes we get so busy with our lives that we don't take that time to sit down with someone. And you know what? I used to do something where I would have random conversations with people. And that is kind of like what you're doing is having random conversations. But the wonderful thing about that is that, especially if you're going from city to city on tour, you may never see that person again. So there's a sense of confidentiality there and anonymity. And there's no pressure either, right? You could just say whatever is on your mind and spill maybe the deepest, darkest secrets that you might feel uncomfortable spilling to anybody else. But it sounds like at this coffee shop, you're probably getting some of the same people coming back over and over. So did you find that you were getting like little chapters of their life as time went on? Oh my gosh, that's so interesting that you put it that way because that's exactly what I felt. Like I had studied 
community and connection and, and belonging academically at USC when I was an undergrad, but I had no experience of it. So it was just all like theory, right? But when I, when this started happening for me at the coffee shop, I felt like I stepped into the land of the Wizard of Oz. I went from black and white into a full color movie experience of life. And I felt like these people that were the regulars at the cafe, I felt like I was reading their autobiographies by getting to know more and more of their story in these snippets over time. And in turn, I was getting to share my stories with them too. So it was both the regulars, and that's like an important principle because you're giving yourself a better chance to bond with people if you're going to re-see them on a regular basis. But there's also huge value because Los Angeles is such a commuter city and people are moving here and, and moving out of here all the time, you also get a lot of people just coming through. And But there's this huge amount of value, like you're pointing to, from one-time interactions with people that are meaningful. In one interaction, you could change someone's life. And we have so much research about just making eye contact with someone in public automatically reduces their loneliness. Thank you so much, Kat. I was wondering, is there anything else that you would like to say about loneliness or about yourself personally? Maybe the number one thing I just want to leave people with is just the statement that you belong here. I know that's my like little tagline because that's like the truest thing I know about human life is that you already belong here. You're good enough. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to earn it. And just continue to have hope that you are wired for this. So we're working with our natures when we start to open up to people and take risks to share some of who we are and that so much is possible for you no matter where you're at in your social journey so much is possible and it can get so good and if this could happen to someone who grew up on a radiation dump and had no friends until they were 28 then it can absolutely happen for you and for anyone you fear that it can't a big thank you to our musical guest Gabby Hanna and our expert Kat Moore We'll be closing the episode with a clip of Gabby Hanna's single, Call Me Crazy, so stay tuned for that. And for more information on Gabby Hanna, visit GabbyHannaOfficial.com. Follow Gabby on her socials and on YouTube at Gabby Hanna or at The Gabby Show. And for more information on Cat Moore, visit Cat-More.com. That's spelled C-A-T-M-O-O-R-E.com. And stay tuned for part two of Kat Moore's interview on an upcoming episode of the Checkhead Podcast. So until next time, be brave, ask for help, and be persistent in finding the mental health that you need. Check Your Head Podcast is kindly supported and partnered with Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, DBSA San Gabriel Valley, 
Earshot Media, and Lemon Tree Studios in Los Angeles. Visit CheckYourHeadPodcast.com where we have over 100 solutions for mental health. Be our friends on social media at CheckYourHeadPodcast. Watch us on YouTube and support us with a kind donation on CheckYourHeadPodcast.com. Check Your Head Podcast is sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit with all donations being tax deductible. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening. <laughs>